This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM developed for the specific needs of the industry and in close collaboration with the community it represents. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, Education Cloud supports institutions to drive student success and institutional success at scale. Learn how institutions are paving the way for the future of higher education and driving all kinds of innovations with Education Cloud by visiting the website salesforce.org forward slash higher ed and exploring the higher education customer stories. everyone and welcome to The Edge, supported by Salesforce.org. This series is all about new ways of doing things in higher education leadership. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechEdge. This week we're obsessing about all things student experience. In an effort to dispel the myth of the traditional student, we talked to a range of guests about how universities are adapting to diverse student needs, what support systems should not be taken for granted, and the dual role of tutor and technology in helping students to achieve. Warren Stanislaus is a PhD student at Oxford University. Here he talks about how his experiences of studying in Japan and then in the UK differed. Okay, so yes, I've been in Japan for about 10 years in total now. So I started off life, I grew up in London um, and then became passionate about uh, Japanese culture, especially pop culture and music when I was about 17 years old and then decided that I have to learn Japanese. And then from there, I took a gap year and went to Japan and worked in a volunteer um, home for the for the elderly and then also in a kindergarten. And then it was really from that experience that I just thought, okay, instead of going to a university in the UK to study Japanese and do Japanese studies there, I thought it would actually be better to learn in situ. And so I went to, um, I enrolled in an international university in Japan um, for my undergraduate degree. And I spent a full four year undergraduate degree there learning Japanese and also taking courses alongside that in English because the university allowed you to take this um, these bilingual classes um, and so kind of from there I've really been able to develop my um, interest in Japan beyond just the culture and really developing it into research and that's what I'm doing today I'm doing my PhD in Japanese history 
um, at the University of Oxford and um, hoping to build that into a career in academia. This episode is all about the sort of student experience. So I just wondered what your summary of your student experience would be to date and, you know, both the things that have been good, but also what you would like to have seen more of as well. Um, well, I think what may be interesting to some of your listeners is my experience as a British student um, in a Japanese university um, from uh, as, a, as a full degree program. So I can firstly speak to that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I enrolled in a Japanese university when I was 18 years old. And I think one of the, the best parts of that experience is, was that it was an international university. So alongside taking courses or the, man, the mandatory and the compulsory course for two years in Japanese language, so I was building up my skills in that area, I was also able to take um, just more general courses in English and develop my kind of just academic and research interests um, beyond the language. Um, and what was really unique about this international university experience is that after those first two years of developing your language skills, you could then start to take courses which blended the two languages of Japanese and English. So, for example, I remember enrolling in one class. It was an American literature class. Um, and the lecture was in Japanese while the texts were in English and then the class discussions were in Japanese, but the exams were in English. And so you kind of had this whole muddled world that was going on and merging of cultures. Um, and that really helped me to not just obviously engage with the text in an analytical way, which is required um, of a university student, but be able to also think in a different language as well and to think of it um, as much as possible, like a native speaker. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I think that experience really kind of helped to expand my potential beyond what I would have been able to do um, if I had just stayed in the UK um, and pursued my studies there. So I, I think, and this is something that I try to do in my work today, um, encouraging and mentoring other students is to really take any opportunities to kind of go overseas and study abroad, especially in a completely different culture um, and somewhere where you have to learn a new language as well. And I think that's one uh, area where especially British students still are quite hesitant mm. um, to, to, to kind of participate in those kind of study abroad opportunities and that outward mobility. So I think that's one um, kind of key experience that I, I really took from my experience in uh, yeah a Japanese university, um, but I think uh, on the negative side, and this is really comparing it to my experience now. Well, first um, at the University of Oxford as a master's student, and now as a PhD student, I think one of the big things um, in comparing the two is that the expectation gaps um, in terms of the, the rigor of the education that you're being provided with. Um, so, for example, at the university in Japan, um, incidentally, I went to a university called International Christian University, which is, was founded in the post-war period in the 1950s to promote um, international education in Japan. But at that university, they, the requirements of I guess, weekly readings 
was only maybe one article. Um, so it wasn't really so stressful. No. And you find that Japanese university students, they don't spend so much time on their studies, but they're spending more time on club activities.、Mm. That really makes up the core of their university experience.、Um, or it's also part time jobs, is another big thing that they participate in.、Um, and also、um, job hunting. Um, forms a big part of their university experience. So, it, ironically, studying is really kind of the、um, just makes up really a minor part of a typical Japanese university life. And, and so, coming back to the UK,、um, that was a really big jump for me, having to kind of、um, deal with,、uh, I mean, on our reading list, on our syllabus, we had maybe 10 texts.、Um, and these were books, not just articles, like 10 texts a week that we had to kind of fish through to try and find the, the、um, key pieces of knowledge that we need to be able to participate in the class discussions. And so I think,、uh, yeah, in conclusion, I think the really、um, the, the, the challenge here is these expectation gaps between. The university experience overseas and what、um, is expected of you in the UK. So I think that was a,、um, one really big takeaway for me. So, university experience is at once an individual lived experience, but also dependent on a heady mix of national and university cultures, group dynamics, and student background. There is no one experience of being a student. But how are universities adapting to the diverse student needs that exist? And what are the pressures which are bringing these needs to the fore? Sita Bardwa is student content editor at the Times Higher Education. Yeah, it's, it's actually really difficult to pinpoint just like one or two specific things that universities are doing to adapt to student needs, as the needs of students are so complex and、mm. it would vary between the different student populations at different universities. Um, but there are a few ways that universities and also some specific teachers are implementing their own unique ways to adapt to student needs. So, the first is the use of more technology、um, within teaching, but also just within the university as a whole. So, things like making lecture notes easily accessible online,、um, using social media to share principles discussed in classes,、um, and lots of different things like that. Another thing that I think is really important to talk about is the conversation around student mental health.、Mm. Um, it's become louder and louder, and lots of universities are working or trying to work really hard to create better help、um, for students and also just awareness of student mental health support.、Um, so, this could include things like peer to peer support,、um, support in student halls,、um, and also training academic staff to deal with mental health concerns and being able to spot the signs. Um, and sort of be able to support the students themselves. Another thing that I think universities are starting to do、um, is having more discussions around course content and the importance for it to just be a bit more diverse and representative of the student body. This is something that students are leading the discussion on. And so I think、um, universities are starting to have those discussions as well.、Um, And the other thing is, is maybe career services. So,、mm. starting to look more closely at how to prep students for the world of work after graduation. So, in some cases, some universities are embedding careers prep into the curriculum of certain subjects, but also just providing kind of clinics or 
um, areas for students to be able to talk about careers. Part of this is bringing students front and centre into their own learning and support systems. Dr Emily McIntosh is the Director of Learning, Teaching and Student Experience at the Centre for Academic Practice Enhancement at Middlesex University. She's also the co-author of Effective Personal Tutoring in Higher Education. As I mentioned before, I think the new regulatory landscape prompted by the Higher Education Research Act in 2017, uh, the establishment of the Office for Students, and as well as the 2012 hiking fees, has encouraged the universities to adapt significantly over the past few years, and in particular the Access and Participation Plan now asks all providers charging maximum fees to commit over the next five years and beyond to reducing gaps in progression and attainment, particularly for vulnerable student groups. As a result of this, universities are now arguably developing a much deeper relationship with their data and examining longitudinal trends to really get under the skin of how students fare in their learning environment. So I think we are more attuned with student needs than ever before and more conscious of our role in nurturing uh, what we call lifelong learning and a wider contribution to knowledge. I'm really encouraged to see the proliferation of research and publications exploring co-creation and co-curation of knowledge with students and the growth of students' partners programmes and the body of literature on student engagement is now really strong as a result of that. I mean, I thought that was really interesting, your point on sort of students as partners. Um, So I've seen some work around this, I suppose, in terms of peer-to-peer assessment. And are there other examples where, you know, of best practice where students are really becoming those partners in their own learning? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of peer-assisted study support. And a shout out to my colleague, Marcia Rodi, who is a guru in this area, as well as uh, my colleague, Will Carey, who's done an awful lot of work on students as partners programmes. They both introduced me to peer-assisted studies sessions at Manchester University. And I introduced PASS to the University of Bolton. And I saw a massive change in the years that I was there in the way that students adopted PASS into their programmes with their tutors. And I think it really does encourage and foster independence of learning, but also independent thought. And those students who graduated having gone through PASS leadership at Bolton were much more confident and much more self-assured as a result of going through those programmes. I think we tend to often sometimes talk about and to and at students rather than uh, understanding I think their needs more more broadly. One student who is proactively supporting his peers is Mukund Desibartler, who got in touch from the University of Connecticut. Mukund set up the Agents of Change Student Leadership podcast to help students early in their research career better navigate how to go about things. Here he talks about how he got things started. It's uh, a fixed resource that helps primarily incoming students or students that want to become involved in research uh, and at least gives them a variety of options because there is really no conventional path to start research. Like, For example, I'm a biology major, but I do research in the psychology, the Department of Psychological Sciences at UConn. Uh, my co-host, Vinaya Keys, a also a biology major, but he does biomedical uh, engineering research. So there's really no conventional path. And I think the whole purpose was to demystify um, the idea of research and at least 
when a lot of my peers entered campus with me, like there was really no um, no direct way to become involved. It was just sort of this is a top this is a top twenty five research institute that we go to, and there's really um, just this kind of this pending idea that we need to become involved in research somehow. So I wanted to at least interview a diverse pool of candidates and show that there's really a lot you can do with the resources on campus and they really induce change and help students uh, go from freshman year um, to leaders by, by their senior year. Fantastic. And, and so, I mean, I've got your email in front of me um, talking about inspirations, hindrances and catalyzed leadership. So from those conversations that you've had, uh, where have students struggled and what would they like more of? Well, I think, first of all, it's connecting with mentors. And at least um, on campus, there's really more than 80 different labs. um, And that's not even including uh, the private labs each professor runs. So I think the hardest obstacle is really reaching out. And uh, the way I structure each episode is I start off with the origin story. I try to demystify how it all started because we all had to start somewhere and at least by the end of the episode I try to tailor in uh, two main questions. How has it helped uh, these leaders that I interview grow or how has it helped induce change? And second of all, is there any advice that they could offer listeners to the podcast? Because at least right now I'm working with the Office of Undergraduate Research and the UConn Honors Department to list this podcast on their websites as a resource for incoming students so that um, the ambassadors of the um, OUR, Office of Undergraduate Research, can forward this podcast to anyone um, in seminars, any freshmen that want to get involved. So I think the biggest thing is it's really supposed to be an interactive, engaging podcast that kind of demystifies the uh, complexity that circles research. So we just uh, released it uh, mid-December, okay. and this is intended to be the first series. So the first series is student leaders uh, engaging uh, at least 12, 12 interviews and I think around 16 student leaders total. And our intention is, after applying for the IDEA grant, we hope to create a second series in which we interview faculty uh, and mentors. and. Uh, I think the purpose of that is kind of looking at experienced leaders and at least asking them questions that we wouldn't normally learn, like their origin stories. How did they become involved in biomedical engineering or psychology or economics or uh, at least the field in which they are um, mentoring? How did they first come across these these subjects? Which is, it's, it is, uh, again, demystifying in the sense that we... We look at these uh, UConn, and it's a hub for experienced faculty mentors, cutting-edge research laboratories. But at least when I walk into a Fall Frontiers Expo and I see this academic writing, I, I don't. You, you never really get to understand the origin stories, um, and I think that's why it's so so tough to email professors and try to become involved. So, international students, commuter students. Returning to education mid-career students, Gen Z students. What various needs are there across any one student body? Dr Emily McIntosh talks about the particular needs of commuter students. 
um, in terms of demographics and geography, um, there are definite challenges uh, with universities delivering um, uh, learning or working with students um, in, in a learning environment. And uh, Middlesex, um, we, we often um, are grappling with what's called the London effect. For our students and for our colleagues, the cost of living and travelling in London is very high. Um, so we're completing more work to understand this live-through experience and to make adjustments to our learning environment to better reflect the needs of our students. So as you mentioned um, in our strategic plan, the, the offer is um, active practice-based learning uh, and mobile learning particularly is a key opportunity for us. And we're understanding now how to um, develop our signature pedagogies alongside technology so that our students are better prepared to learn on the go um, our student profile is very diverse at Middlesex, which is something that we celebrate, but it also means we're challenged to develop a learning environment that's completely inclusive for all, but we're not alone in that. Being new in post, I'm obviously doing a fair few comparisons uh, with the Northwest, um, where I was based previously, and there are pockets there of long-standing social deprivation, as in elsewhere in the country. The potential for some students to be geographically mobile is just not possible their choice of university and course is more limited to their local providers especially those who are returning to education after a hiatus so I think we have to be responsive to those differences and I think our pedagogical stance is central to that we've just completed um, uh, the, my colleagues have just completed a large piece of work on commuter students and uh, there's an awful lot of work being done by Liz Thomas at the moment on commuter students and to understand um, the impact of commuting on the student experience. It's a really exciting um, piece of work uh, and I'm really keen to understand better how that plays out. Going back to Warren Stanislaus, he reflects on the experiences of international students globally. Yeah, I think this is a trend that you see in Asia more generally and this was the same thing in Japan but they put the international students in dorms together. So all of the international students will be lumped in an international dorm, which will often be separate from the local Japanese or Chinese students, for example. Um, often the facilities will be better, which, uh, and they will be more kind of, global standard facilities so it would be ensuite um private rooms um or you may have like a unit where you just share kitchen with a few roommates um but i think and so in that sense it's positive that they are trying to create a comfortable environment for the international students but i think on the other hand one of the kind of biggest challenges is integration. Because obviously, if you're going to somewhere like Japan or China, you're not going there just to hang around with people from your own country or um, other kind of similar types of people. You really want to try and integrate in the local culture, want to speak the local language. Um, so, and you want to make friends from that country as well. And so if you're being separated into a completely different dorm, um, and your whole life is not um, merged into the local student experience, then I think that's one of the, uh, the areas that people can get frustrated with. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think there's kind of positives and negatives to both sides. I think I, I've, I've heard also that in China that's caused some some controversy as well because of the big gaps in quality of the services that are provided to the local Chinese students, which I think they're in dorms sharing between four and six people, like one room on bunk beds in some universities, whereas the international students are getting ensuite private rooms. So <laughs> that can lead to some conflict on campus as well in terms of the, the support that's being provided. But what about the needs of the mid-career worker returning to study? Whilst industry media focuses a great deal on the future of work and upskilling and reskilling, it appears the university offer is still very much focused on the traditional undergrad. I think university is still ultimately geared towards the the undergraduate student. Um, But I think that there are certain courses where you might have a higher proportion of mature um, or kind of mid-career students. So um, nursing is a particular one. Many business mm. courses will also have. So I, I think maybe within those courses, there might be um, good support for those students. But I, th- I, I still do think that the conversation kind of is geared towards undergraduate students. Yeah, yeah. One popular way of looking at student needs is through a generational lens. However, this has many pitfalls as our guests explore. In particular, the digital savviness of students and staff to engage in digital support tools should not be assumed based on age. And I wondered if we could take a moment to talk about uh, Gen Z, because if I understand correctly, it's going to make up this you know, huge percentage of, of the population. And um, in terms of the university getting their heads around uh, what this particular demographic you know, need, both in support and, and require... Um, I just wondered if you had any insights on how Gen Z might differ from uh, previous cohorts that have sort of go th- gone through university as well. Yeah, so they are actually quite a lot different, actually. Um, the world has changed a lot in the last few years and as a result, so has higher education. Mm. Um, so to start off with, uh, a very obvious change is that students are paying much more for their education these days than previous cohorts have done. So I feel like there might be more of an idea of getting your money's worth while at university. And so students are potentially, some, not all, um, are expecting more from their universities than before. And so because of this, they may be more forthcoming about getting feedback from lecturers, um, you know, taking more of lectures kind of open time and just becoming, as I said before, a bit more engaged with their course content. Um, And I think another thing is just that more and more people are going to university these days. So having a degree might not always give you the edge in Mm. today's competitive job market. Um, In some uh, career paths, you know, absolutely does, but in others, maybe not so. Um, So because of that, and students are very aware of that, and so I think they are might be more likely to join them with extracurricular activities or undertaking work experience or even having part-time jobs just to give them kind of a bit more of an edge when they go to apply for jobs later on. Um, yeah, so and then again, there's kind of the idea again of mental health. This is another huge thing that pot- potentially obviously existed at some point, um, but it, the conversation is much louder. So this is something that students are really looking to is the support they can get from universities with things like stress um, and anxiety. Students are also a lot more engaged in political and social issues, uh, a big one being climate change. So quite often they might be more likely to hold their university to account in terms mm. of how sustainable they are. 
um, what they're doing to combat climate change and also just making their own personal choices into how they can be more sustainable and, and yeah, do that their own bit, really. You know, there's always a lot of chat around, um, you know, different generations of students coming through university and how we should adapt based on, um, you know, the particular demographic or uh, generational needs. But um, often that's been sort of disputed in terms of its relevance, especially in terms of um, expertise around digital, for example. Um, What's your view on the generational side of things? And what's the kind of perhaps more useful way of looking at the diversity of students out there? Yeah, as you mentioned, I think uh, generational theory has been contested in some quarters and we could probably talk about that all day. But I think there's been a dearth of mature and also part time learners in higher education in the UK over the past few years on a sector wide level. But it's important to note that some universities still maintain a very high level of mature students, many of whom are not technically in Gen Z, as you would describe it. Um, For me, it's about understanding both individual and cohort needs. So that transcends the idea of generations. The biggest disruptor in this space is most certainly social media and the way that different students engage with with social media and how they build learning relationships, both face to face and online. Many of our students lead complex lives. They have a multitude of commitments and identities. No one set of characteristics completely defines anybody or anything. And so the continual quest for understanding and also being understood, I think, is key here. The uh, greatest change that I've witnessed in in recent years is the increasing thirst for a personalised learning experience. And this is very hard to achieve, I think, at scale in a sector that's become usually massified, diversified and also globalised. So I think this challenges colleagues really to define how we think about student success to develop cognitive diversity in the way that we conceptualize and discuss the challenges that we face and most importantly encourage a continuous dialogue with colleagues and students about our expectations and working relationships. Uh, I think as well in order to ensure that our students have the best chance of realizing their potential however we've got to develop this idea of cohort identity as well as that individual learner identity Mm. that's key to fostering independent learning and also cohesion but it is very challenging to achieve and I think what's interesting around that is um, I've heard that you know obviously there's a lot of discussion around collaboration and collaborative skills being really important but students are also very savvy and understand you know they're 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 paying a a lot of money often and um, actually they want that kind of assessment to go well so that they can kind of progress to whatever's next and so I've heard there's kind of a hesitancy to actually get involved in some of that group work or cohort work sometimes so there's a tension between perhaps what they would do if they weren't being assessed in that kind of um, in that way and then the reality on in the sort of day-to-day sort of teaching and learning experience as well. Absolutely. I think we really have to get under the skin of our assessment practices and encourage students to see this as a journey. Um, Often, I think the modularization of courses and programs uh, encourages learners to be strategic. Um, The scheduling of our assessments uh, and the way that modules work in tandem across a program is really key, as well as encouraging students to understand expectations around assessment and also feedback 
A hugely useful piece of work in this space is the JISC Digital Insights Report, which explored the findings from a survey of over 29,000 further education and higher education students. Here's Sarah Knight, Head of Change for Student Experience at JISC, to tell us more. Hello, I'm, I'm Sarah Knight. I've worked at JISC for uh, nearly 16 years, um, primarily working uh, with colleges and universities to help them make best use of technology in their practice. So our work is very much focused around how we can ensure that students are well prepared for a digital workplace, how staff are able to develop confidence and skills in using technology effectively in the curriculum, and the projects that we've managed over the years have very much focused um, on sort of cultural transformation around the use of technology. So uh, here today to share a little bit about our more recent work, which focuses on how do we know how students and staff are actually using technology and are they really realising the benefits from the digital environment that colleges and universities are now offering. I think there is still that misconception that age um, plays quite a key factor in the relation of, of students, uh, you know, experiences of technology. And we've really sort of been able to try and dispel that myth over time because in all the interviews that we've done, the focus group work we've done, as well as the research we've done around the surveys, um, age is not always the most important factor. And actually, what we need to remember is that our students coming into university or college still come from quite a traditional didactic way of teaching within the school system. And, you know, if we are thinking about how technology is used within the classroom at a schools level, it's perhaps not quite at the innovative and transformative levels that we would expect, we would be expecting to start to see happening. So students come in from school with quite traditional views around their experience um, or what they're going to expect when they come into university. And that, um, it, you know, is something that we've seen over the years and it's not necessarily changing. Students come in expecting to still have a lot of content with their lecturers. They're expecting to have that social interaction. And, you know, when you ask them about their preferences of working, um, they're not uh, coming through strongly to say, actually, we want to do everything online. They very much still value the face-to-face -face interactions that we're seeing. What we're also seeing, um, which again, with the, the myth around, you know, that, that uh, Generation Z are all coming in digitally enabled, yes, they may be very confident in using technology within their own lives and, you know, using it for their personal, for their social interactions. But actually, when they come into university, they're still expecting a lot of support and need a lot of guidance around how to use technology well for their learning. And that is where we have this mismatch between the expectations that staff have to think, well, these students are all digitally competent. They all know how to use technology effectively. And actually what we're then seeing in terms of those experiences of those students that are saying, actually, don't assume that. We still need support. We still need guidance. And some of the findings that pick up on that from, the, from our 2019 survey, um, you know, so you reiterate that, um, for example, 43% of RHE students agree that their university helps them to stay safe online. Mm. And again, you know, there's that assumption being made, especially at university level, that students know how to behave safely, appropriately online. 
And that is definitely not you know, the case. They're still expecting some type of guidance. Um, there's also quite a surprising finding that has come through, you know, certainly the past um, two or three years when we've asked this question around, you know, students, how important do students feel that digital skills are going to be in the workplace? And 70% of students feel that digital skills are important for their chosen careers, but only 42% feel that their courses prepare them for the digital workplace and 19% disagreed. So that sort of mismatch between the expectations that we all have around, we know that digital skills are important in the workplace, but actually then being able to embed those digital skills within to courses, within to the curricula, to have an authentic learning experience for their students, for them to develop those necessary skills that are relevant to their particular chosen discipline. That's still you know, a very large um, challenge that we're experiencing. So the, the messages are there that, you know, that, that it's not the assumption that can be made that students come in digitally enabled. They need that support. They need the guidance. And a sort of another quite surprising um, result on this aspect is in relation to collaboration online. Mm. And if you think about students in their own lives, you know, the apps they use, the messaging services, they're always collaborating online. But when it comes to the classroom, um, there was still a, quite a low percentage of students that were actually feeling confident and wanted to actually participate in sort of group collaboration activities. And again, thinking about, you know, you move in the workplace where so much of our work now is happening in a digital media. We're having to collaborate as we're doing now at a distance online. Um, those are the skills that we need to be encouraging our students to develop. So some really sort of core areas that are important for us to work with universities on in developing further. So with our assumptions of student digital readiness blown away, what is the role of technology in delivering student needs and how can we best support it? Gosh, technology has been a major disruptor to the academic environment along with social media. It offers us a multitude of opportunities to reimagine what we mean by classroom and going back to our discussion before about mobile and active practice-based learning. We can't do that without technology. Uh, the, the thing I'd like to focus on here particularly though is the advent of the student dashboard, reflecting what I said before about the uh, importance of academic and personal tutoring, learning analytics and engagement analytics platforms are appearing everywhere now uh, as universities uh, reimagine their tutoring infrastructure. They have a big part to play in helping us understand students and the data visualizations that they offer um, must again never overtake the role of the student, the student and tutor relationship in the classroom, uh, triangulating that knowledge in practice and in person. It's important to bear in mind as well that those data streams captured by dashboards uh, are, are only proxies for engagement. Uh, they're hugely useful though in terms of connecting up the dots, understanding how we can connect students with wider support systems and recording our interactions with them. They give us a chance to offer early intervention and transitional support in an anticipatory and proactive rather than a reactive way. The recent article written by Ed Foster and Rebecca Siddle at Nottingham Trent, uh, for example, looked at two cohorts of first-year undergraduate students and examined the impact of engagement alerts on their outcomes and they found that the no engagement alerts that they set up were much better at identifying vulnerable students than demographic data. 
which I think is a critical piece of knowledge for us in the, uh, where we are at the moment in the sector. Yeah, and, and this is actually quite a big thing and, and quite a big way that universities are really catering towards those Gen Z students. They're going to be far more likely to be typing out notes during lectures rather than handwriting them, um, using online journals and resources for research and just knowing how to use technology to really supplement their learning. Um, so some of the ways that I've seen that universities are using technology is just more videos and interactive media during lectures. Um, and social media as well is being used as a tool to disseminate lecture notes and to hmm. spark discussions. Um, so things like Snapchat groups among seminar groups are being used. WhatsApp groups and Instagram as well, uh, little Instagram videos and things like that are all really good creative ways that technology is being used. Um, and some universities within certain departments as well um, might also be creating their own apps um, that students can use to kind of discuss complex um, ideas and things like that. Um, but it's not just within the classroom that technology is being used. So things like um, social media, again, and online video blogs and written blogs, which are quite often created by students on universities' websites, are being used to give prospective students a chance to see what universities are like from the student point of view, um, which is quite interesting. Um, and a get, get great way to kind of give students the, uh, the skills to create those um, yeah. online video blogs and things like that, which is really great. Um, other things are support systems um, have now become quite abundant online, so forums, um, chat, things like that, which students can kind of talk to each other. Again, that peer-to-peer support, which I mentioned earlier, um, a kind of first port of call for students to discuss any concerns that they have about, again, stress or anxiety or finance or anything like that. Um, and different kind of ways to talk to counsellors online without having to meet anyone at first, mm. um, which I think is, is potentially helping students kind of talk about their mental health a lot more. Um, and the other thing is that social media is actually being used a lot more during the clearing process. So making it easier for prospective students to discuss options with universities over Snapchat, Twitter and WhatsApp. Um, so they're not having to spend hours on the phone, um, which can kind of help universities to, to talk to students a lot quicker. Um, so that, that I think those are just a few ways that universities yeah. are really incorporating technology into how they communicate with students, um, as well as recruiting new students. So, um, but I'm sure there's plenty of others as well that I've missed. But the, as you can see, I, I, it's really creative. I love the um, clearing one. Like, uh, yeah, I I saw the a lot of universities um, having those conversations on Instagram as well. I just thought, yes, quite yeah. savvy. Yeah. If all this potential for student support is to be achieved, one thing came through loud and clear from all my guests, that professional development is essential. And, you know, just going back to your job title of sort of head of change uh, for student experience, um, having kind of analysed all of this information and feedback from students, what, you know, if, if you could uh, encourage uh, or, or will on, um, certain change in this area of student experience for universities what would you love to see more of? I would love to see the recognition that staff equally need to keep up as much as they do on their professional side and keeping up to date with their uh, specialist area that they are teaching and lecturing in or researching in that they also have that commitment to develop their digital skills Um, We run a parallel survey for teaching staff and professional services staff within universities and colleges. Um, And last year we had about 6,500 staff that responded to that survey across the UK. 
And what came through so strongly from that survey was the need for staff to be given incentives, time, uh, support from their senior leaders to actually upskill their, their digital skills and capabilities. And, you know, there's so much emphasis in terms of the infrastructure, the digital environment, the technology, you know, there's so many opportunities that are there for us to make better use of, of the technology. But actually, if it's not being embedded within the learning, within the curricula that staff are delivering, and staff are not confident in knowing what benefits they offer, we're never going to sort of narrow that gap between the mismatch of students' expectations and preparing them really for a world-class uh, you know, digital experience that they will get at their university, which then prepares them for the workplace that they're going into. So professional development is such an important uh, driver. And, you know, unfortunately, it's one of the things that staff, albeit in colleges or in universities, very much struggle with in terms of having that commitment, that support, that uh, that goal to achieve the digital capabilities they need to live, learn and work in a digital society. From the university perspective, sort of trying to address all of those different needs uh, would be hugely complex and demanding. So I was wondering from your perspective across the sector, whether you're seeing universities more specialise around um, certain student groups and, and their particular needs and define their kind of identity around that. Um, in a word, yes, I think we are. Um, I think we are looking uh, in closer detail at uh, at student groups, uh, and we're challenged to do this in our access and participation plans. I haven't seen necessarily universities specialise or, or wish to specialise in in working with particular student groups, but through our access and participation plans, we're looking at how our data also intersects, which gives us a richer picture of how students are responding to our learning environment. I think whilst it's important and necessary sometimes to perform a segmentation analysis, it's critical to also understand that increasing our increasing uh, and emerging knowledge of our students and their context shouldn't be used to place abject judgments or limits on what they can do or their potential. Rather, I think if we have an increased awareness of our learners' context, uh, it can help us to support them better and make improvements to our learning environment. Actually, shines a light on how our environment supports uh, students, whether it's responsive enough to their needs, and critically, how we manage learner expectations. And um, this, you know, this information I feel very strongly shouldn't be used to make judgments about who should attend our universities or make wild predictions about how they may fare when we then when they arrive. Often I've seen many students perform exceptionally well in spite of what our information tells us about their background. Uh, this is why I think that academic tutoring is so critical and an important vehicle for achieving this in practice. A skilled academic tutor can make sound decisions about how to support their learners when they contextualise that data in conversation with their students, both in and outside of the classroom. Uh, this is why the colleague experience, I think, is also equally important. So we can't achieve a dialogue without supporting everybody to succeed in offering the right tools to undertake those roles. To wrap up this episode, I asked my guests their final thoughts on resources, projects or approaches that are worth considering when thinking about 1001 student experiences. And um, I was interested to find out a little bit more about your, your book as well. 
Oh gosh, yes, the book, it, it was uh, a year old in October. We've had uh, a very good response to uh, to the book's publication in the sector. Um, before that, nothing had been written on personal tutoring in, in 10 years. And I think that's very telling of how neglected it has been as a, as a as a force for improving student outcomes. But I think the advent of the new Higher Education and Research Act, uh, the Teaching Excellence Framework, and um, particularly the Access and Participation Plan, has meant that every university across the land is now reimagining their tutorial frameworks. And so we felt that it would be important to write a handbook that was useful and practical for colleagues working directly with students, whether that's in a teaching and learning role or in a um, teaching and learning support role. Very, very interesting. And what were your kind of main recommendations um, in in the book as well, or or sort of guidance for people reading? We offered a number of insights into the practicalities of providing tutoring on the ground. Uh, One of the things that I felt was really useful is to benchmark provision within an institution What we found uh, across our experience was a a multitude of differences in the models that institutions use to deliver their tutoring offer. When I run a conference session with a number of colleagues across the sector at the UCAT conference in Derby a couple of years ago, we had over 30 people in the room. And when I asked them to describe whether or not they had a model of tutoring, many said yes, but many couldn't decide which one it was. <laughs> and I think that was telling enough to uh, to think about how we conceptualize this in theory and also how we then provide background and wraparound support for colleagues and students. And uh, so the book argues around um, having an established model and principles and also critically a definition of tutoring that will work? Um, I think uh, one really big area that I learned from um, Japan and that I'm trying to now bring um, back to kind of my initiatives at the University of Oxford and the projects that I'm involved in is alumni networks. Um, So there's certain universities in Japan that when companies are trying to hire new graduates, they send out um, their staff to the universities that they graduated from to engage with the students there. Um, And so I think those alumni networks are really indispensable in terms of creating new opportunities for current students and also just giving kind of case studies so students can really see what people who have graduated from their degree program have gone on to do. So they get a real diverse picture of the various opportunities. So just to speak more specifically about the project that um, I'm in or the initiatives that I'm involved in. So I set up the Oxford University Alumni Club in Japan um, in 2014. And now we have Um, around 600 members and what that's allowed me to do is firstly I have a kind of a broad picture of the types of career paths that the alumni um, whether Japanese citizens or 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 non-Japanese people who have gone on to work in Japan um, have done with their degrees coming out of the university and how they've been able to link it with Japan in some way. 
And then I've been able to bring that back to the university and share that with current students. And so if students want to get coaching or mentoring or, or get a, a link with someone, they can go through our alumni network and then get a better picture of, yeah, how to um, carve out their own career path. I would definitely say that students are looking for opportunities that connect their university experience with the real world and mm. future career prospects. Um, and I would say this is the case, um, especially within the field of humanities. And so I just wanted to give some examples of how I'm doing that within the field of Japan studies, so kind of my area of expertise. A lot of people go into Japan studies because they're passionate about the culture. Mm. That was very much the case for me. And so what you find is that they don't really think beyond that in terms of, okay, what career is this going to lead to? Um, how can I use um, my skills in Japanese language or my um, analytical skills related to interpreting literature to then get a job uh, or even what jobs can I do? So one thing that I've been trying to um, really build upon is my kind of connections to companies, whether that be within the UK or within Japan, that are looking for bilinguals to um, and, and then create internship opportunities. So while the students are doing undergraduate degrees or postgraduate degrees, they can just take their holidays and then join a company um, and then, yeah, really use the skills that they've been learning in the university and then apply it to that company. And then potentially they may go back to university and that experience um, within, uh, I don't know, a certain sector may help inform the dissertation that they're writing um, or conversely, they may feel like, yeah, that's the sector that I want to go into after. So I think the really key point here is being able to have those experiences while they are studying so that they can see how mm. what they are doing within their university degree is really going to link into a job in the future. And so those exits in terms of post-graduation job opportunities, I think they're also really linked to um, the recent discussions of access and widening participation as well. Because you find that a lot of um, BAME students or students from um, kind of the lower socioeconomic backgrounds find that the humanities subjects, especially, they don't want to go into them because what job is this going to lead to after? Um, and so uh, let's say, for example, a subject like Japanese studies, it's a very, it's a luxury subject. Why would you choose Japanese? What job are you going to get out of that after? So if you're from a certain background where maybe your parents or your teachers are encouraging you to, um, do something more practical, like a business degree or a, or a STEM subject, it's going to be very hard to convince them to, uh, that, yeah, doing Japanese or doing a humanities subject is going to be worth it in the long term. Um, and so 
I think it's really important for universities to try and incorporate those um, co-curricular activities into um, the heart and the core of their curriculum, not just to help their current students, but also for the point of thinking about those broader issues of widening participation and access as well. Um, so something that came up very recently, um, which again is about student mental health, is the University Mental Health Charter, which is an initiative by Student Minds. Um, and it was put together by staff and students across the country to understand the scope of mental health among students and also uh, discusses ways that universities can provide good services and work with other organisations to provide good mental health care for students, um, which I think is going to be a really good resource for universities going forward. Um, and also students were just uh, talked to while they were putting this charter together. So it does have the student voice in there. Um, <clears throat> There's been quite a bit more research into the BME attainment gap as well, mm. which is, I think, uh, a conversation that universities are starting to have. Um, of course, there's the THE student website, which has lots of blogs um, from students, which talks about some of the biggest issues that they face um, and, uh, you know, talks about the things that they're, they're most concerned about, but also the things they like the most about going to university. So lots of different things, I think, and, and hopefully that will just continue into next year. Um, I think one of the best ways really to understand the student landscape is, as you said right at the beginning of this interview, is just to speak to students themselves and to figure out what they want from their universities um, and from their education. They are becoming so much more vocal about this. Mm. And I think they're a really valuable voice to include into that conversation. Gosh, yeah, I've been really fortunate to be able to work alongside some fantastic colleagues and students, both uh, in my home institutions and also in the sector as a whole. I'm always amazed, actually, at the uh, plethora of best practice being shared in the sector on student engagement, student success, pedagogy, technology, etc. Um, there's so much to read. I can never keep on top of it all. My colleague, Luke Millard at Birmingham City University, has often talked of our need to reimagine what it means to be a full-time student. And I absolutely agree with him. I think there's a real opportunity for us to explore that further. The... Um, Best resources I have seen, which those that make us stop and think about what we do and how we do it, uh, in that respect, have been really challenged by Matthew Said's book on rebel ideas, which I'd highly recommend to anybody. The, um, the Hefke report on differential outcomes in 2015, authored by Anna Mountford, Zimdars and colleagues, was a really sobering insight into our learning environment and uh, the impacts that those learning environments have on student attainment and progression gaps. Obviously, I think well, it would be obvious for me, Liz Thomas's work, uh, uh, what works, and Michelle Morgan's work on the student experience continue to be seminal reading for anyone interested in this space and why it's important. Most recently, uh, the role of the student, um, the role of the academic, which is a, a report authored by Gareth Hughes and Nicola Byram on behalf of the charity Student Minds, was a critical piece of work, emphasising, again, just how important it is for um us to reimagine the role of, of the academic tutor or the academic in providing support to students, especially around mental health and well-being. Uh, um, there's some exceptional practice in transforming assessment and feedback as well. I think the work of Naomi Winstone uh, is, is uh, one I particularly like to highlight there. And also some of my favourite pieces, I think, are those which go back to examining the role of universities and their purpose. In the uh, introduction of the book, we looked a, a lot at the history of personal tutoring, which was, I think, was fascinating for me being a historian by background. <laughs> um, but I'm really interested in the emerging uh, 
21st century university and what that means for our learners, uh, such as Stefan Polini's What Are Universities For? It's very good. Um, it's also, I think, excellent communities of practice out there at the moment and really helped to shape my thinking. Uh, it's impossible to name them all. Uh, those that I, I should really highlight, though, are the European First Year Experience Network, or EFYE, it's been well-established and a long-standing European network of those working in the first-year experience space. Although I'm not an active participant or poster on many GISC lists, uh, I am a lurker, and I found threads on, on the CEDA Staff Educational Development Association list and the Learning Development and Higher Education Network to be really important over the years. Uh, as a network of practitioners focusing on tutoring, however, UCAT, UK Advising and Tutoring, where I'm both a trustee and board member has brought me into contact with a large number of hugely dedicated colleagues working on improving the learner experience through academic advising and tutoring in all its forms uh, and as a head up for, for listeners who are interested we're running a technology and tutoring event uh, hosted by UCAT in April at Middlesex so please keep an eye out for that. I mean certainly our work we've been very um, fortunate to have been researching going back really to 2004-2005 and the underpinning research, particularly around you know, thinking, when you say digital skills, what do you mean by that? It's not just about how to use an application or you know, how to access something on the internet. Digital capabilities is such a broad area. And one of the things that's made um, that far more tangible to staff uh, and working in the, in the UK and also internationally is our digital capability framework which the thinking behind that was uh, originally done by Helen Beetham, mm. uh, an expert consultant that we've worked with. Um, we've worked with people like Rona Sharp, who is at Oxford University, uh, and Lou McGill. And they have really um, been able to sort of form the underpinning foundation for all our work going forward as a reference point for universities to say, actually, what do we mean? What are the digital skills that a university lecturer needs? And hence, we've been able to use our model to be able to then uh, draw together some profiles and capabilities that are relevant to different role types working within universities and colleges. And that's been a really useful sort of starting point for us as a, as a UK sector to have a shared and common understanding around what we mean by digital capabilities and digital skills for our staff and students. We haven't cracked it because we know, as we've been saying, there's still a long way to go before we narrow that gap. But what it has done is enabled a shared vocabulary, a shared understanding, and a really good reference and starting point for staff to be able to know the areas that they need to develop their skills on. Um, so that, in, in addition to the reports that we've been producing from our Digital Experience Insights work, um, have really, I think, been valuable sort of sector uh, sort of benchmarks for us to sort of work with and, uh, you know, have that guidance reference point from. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and salesforce.org for supporting. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechedge at podcastedtech and as salesforce.org on all the social medias or for all the show notes including resource and reading recommendations it's www.theedtechpodcast.com. Have a great week and bye-bye.